Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of the Sitcom Club. John and myself, Gary, is Mr. Take a bite out of my sandwich. Total Ricer. You mentioned it, so now you've got to spill it. What is the sandwich? What type is it? It's pastrami on white. What we're doing this time round, and also next time round as well, is we're talking about the BBC's sitcom season. They have taken an arbitrary date. In this case, is it the debut of Hancock's Half Hour on BBC television? Yes. And you have views about this, I know. Because it's not really the proper anniversary of sitcoms, because that would have been... November 2016 would be the 70th anniversary of sitcom as a regular television thing in all of television, if the Radio Times Guide to Comedy and Wikipedia is to be believed. The debut of Pinwright's Progress on the BBC television service, the first regular half-hour situation comedy, not weekly, I believe it was bi-weekly. And it might sound pedantic. It does. No, here's the thing. It's like, oh, well, you know, Hancock's more famous. So that's it. We're hostages to what people can remember. And if we tell people things they didn't already know or couldn't already work out for themselves, are we doing them a disservice? (laughs) And it's that mindset that I think, let's use the word, infects the sitcom season, at least in terms of what returns. I know there have been new shows that you watched. And the trailer turned me off. So, and you said that I didn't have to. So okay, now well, let, let me let me just clarify this because there are four distinct strands of the sitcom season, and we're talking about one of them today. The new shows, as in out and out brand new half hour sitcoms, and and you could probably say for all of them, sort of intended as pilots. That's labelled new on two. There is a little section on BBC Free, yes, it still exists, called Comedy Feeds, which is some little skits, bits and pieces from new talent and so on. And I'm going to have a look at both of them, and I'll talk about them a little bit next time. Not seen any of them yet. Also on BBC Four, probably the section of all of this which has had the most attention along with BBC One, which will come to shortly, the lost sitcoms, as they're called. And it's a little bit of a sort of loose term, this, because what they're actually doing is they are recreating, and these were recorded just down the road from myself at Pacific Key in Glasgow. They are recreating free scripts from shows which no longer exist in exactly the right form. Now, in the case of Steptoe and Son, for example, it does exist. It's simply a colour episode which no longer exists in colour. There's only a black and white recording of it. The Todefus Dupart episode... The audio of that exists, but the visuals don't. What's the business with Hancock? What's the doings there? I believe a radio version exists, but the television version doesn't. And there are differences. And the thing about Hancock, of course, is that this is something that's already been happening for a while, because they've been doing the missing Hancocks with Kevin McNally in the title role on Radio 4. So this is more like a sort of radio-to-TV transition. I'm going to talk about all of those all little bits and pieces next time. But in the meantime, today, we are concentrating exclusively on the four what are called BBC One revivals. Four shows, interesting little mix, programmes themselves, styles, casting, all sorts going on here. This began on a Sunday night not long ago with Are You Being Served? Now, this is a show in which I think, yes, uniquely amongst the four of them, there is absolutely no link 
at all with the original show because of course all the people all the cast on screen and and the crew the principal crew behind the scenes are no longer with it so this is a completely new setup all new cast new writer and so on so the writer of this is Darren Litton who's best known for Ben and Don and we've got an all new cast but all the same characters so in a way it's sort of like the Australian version which I'm slightly obsessed with but Till, you're good with names. Do you want to give us a quick rundown on some of the main characters and the main people who are portraying them? Well, the biggest shoes to fill are those of John Inman's character, Mr. Humphreys, and Jason Watkins is playing Mr. Humphreys, about which we'll have something to say. Sitcom veteran Sherry Hewson was also in an episode of The Sandbaggers as Mrs. Slocum. Yeah, hang on, you slipped that in there. John Chalice was in an episode of Mr. Rose and is a friend of the sitcom club. As Captain Peacock. Roy Barraclough, he was in an episode of Public Eye as Mr. <laughs> Granger. Yes, all these people were in an episode of some drama series that's been released by Network that Tilt's been watching recently. Coyote Aomwe as the new character, Mr. Conway. I'm hoping I pronounced his name correctly. Mr. Conway. A, a, a yes, lot of the more famous people I'm actually not really aware of, not having watched British television properly for the better part of seven years. Uh, Nikki Wardley as Miss Brahms, Matthew Horne as the new Mr. Grace, Justin Edwards as Mr. Rumbold, and Georgie Porter as Miss Croft, and Arthur Smith as himself. Says Mr. Harmon, but it's Arthur Smith playing Arthur Smith <laughs> in the Arthur Smith way that he has. A few names that you might recognise there. Jason Watkins, of course. Probably the highest profile role. He's one of those actors now just appears everywhere and everything. Drama's left, right, and centre. Probably the highest profile role that he had drama-wise was a one-off called The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries a few years ago. As far as sitcoms are concerned, for quite a few years he was playing the sitcom manager alongside Jane Horrocks in Trolley on Sky. You have a lot of investment in Are You Being Served, haven't you? Emotionally, not financially. I think that's true. I do particularly like Are You Being Served. It was one of those shows that I saw bits and pieces of in the 80s and 90s, but I became particularly attached to it in 1997 because it enjoyed a very successful repeat run on BBC One in the early evenings on Saturdays in the autumn of 1997. And I think that a lot of people like myself discovered it for the first time. And what they actually did is that they actually brought in David Croft and... Jeremy Lloyd to oversee the repeats and sometimes they would you know they would, they would select ideal episodes and sometimes make like little edits just little things here there tighten up things maybe take out the odd reference and so on yeah it was hugely popular and part of the reason I think that I enjoyed it is because again I've said this before but how you I sort of just I get attached to the atmosphere of a particular show so for example I like the atmosphere in Grace Brothers for some strange reason I've never ever taken to the atmosphere in a lower low I don't know why. I don't know why that is, but it's just it's never appealed to me. Also, I do like long-running shows that have changes of cast members. I'm always interested to see how that is handled and what impact it has, what effect it has on the overall show itself. So yeah, I Being Served was eventually a show which I saw every episode of. UK Gold showed them on a nightly basis. And yes, I did record them on VHS on a nightly basis. And you young uns with your Sky Plus and your iPlayer, you have no idea how damn difficult that was to do with a VHS recorder back in the day. But anyway, yeah, I like it being served. I even like the film. What the heck? So when I heard that they were doing this, I thought, oh. 
So when I saw the photograph of the cast, for example, I thought, well, it looks pretty good. The set is, is very well designed. It's very authentic looking. And the selection of the personnel, Sherry Houston, John Chalice, and so on. Yeah, they all they just sort of look the part. Arthur Smith, he looks absolutely spot on in the role and what have you. And yeah, it was the first show that was on. I was quite willing to give it a chance. And okay, which one of us wants to go first then? Do you want, do you want me to spill my views on it or do you want to jump in? Uh, no, you you speak first. I'll just quickly here say that Jeremy Lloyd was in an episode of Callum. Thanks for that. Now, I had mixed views about this. Overall, on balance, sort of, a bit, I liked it. In the same way as sort of on balance, a bit, I like still open all hours. If it happens to be on, I'll give it a watch. It's quite amusing, undemanding. Yeah, fine. I was not overwhelmed by it. Uh, I didn't hugely take against it and I saw reactions from people on Twitter on in both camps and I can understand that some people just don't like the idea at all of it being restaged and it's probably hypocritical of me to say this but there are certain things actually that I would agree with that about I, I'm, I'm, I, I, we've had this discussion slash argument before I've got absolutely no interest whatsoever in seeing this film that's been proposed about Lauren Hardy I just I don't want to see depictions of Lauren Hardy by all the actors. I'm not interested. Uh, in the same way, there's not a hope in hell of me watching this new Mark and Wise show. Oh, now there's a gulf of difference. Though. No, no, I don't think there is. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that the Lauren Hardy thing is is a biopic and it's a drama and it's a story and so on. But honestly, there's just certain people I think just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. Same thing with something like Core Blimey. You know the um uh, the Carry On play. It's like, just leave them alone, will you? Don't keep on raking up muck about people all the time and trying to portray people in the worst way and trying to invent conflict when there wasn't any. And that's obviously what I know exactly what this damn film's going to be like when it comes out. They're going to be looking for conflict when there wasn't any. Now, if you read Law and Hardy biographies and what have you, you'd be very hard-pressed to try and find any conflict between the two of them because there wasn't any. But that doesn't make for a good film. So they're going to invent stuff, aren't they? I don't know. It de- it depends what approach they take. There is an interesting story in there, as I understand it. The Laurel and Hardy film is going to be based on the British tours. And that was really the first time they were living in each other's pockets, touring and grafting, essentially having the beginning of their career at the end. And apparently they found out that, yeah, they could actually make it work. They did like each other. So you can do that whole thing of the idea of what Laurel and Hardy must have been like versus the reality, which was during the time they're making their best work, they're not socialising. They like working with each other, but work is work. And at the end of the day, one goes one way and the other goes the other way. And now they're having their lives in the wrong order. Suddenly now they're going up and down, playing places, doing hard work, as if they were trying to build their names, but actually they're after their legend. And it's like, I never really knew you before. And uh, yeah, you you're quite a nice guy. You could do a sweet film. Just put in a few anecdotes. I mean, there's the whole thing of their autograph book. They wanted the autographs of everybody they worked with, and they were approaching people infinitely less famous than themselves in this very apologetic way. Ray Allen tells a story on a recently shown thing on Talking Pictures TV, Tell Me Another, about Oliver Hardy asking him for his autograph in this apologetic way. So it can just be done as a character piece. What were these two men like? What were their lives like? 
it doesn't have to be muckraking. I know you avoided that BBC4 thing, Eric and Ernie. That was the same thing. It was just about how do you become Morecambe and Wise? How did they form? What were they like? As it turns out, they were nice people who liked and respected each other, but there were professional turmoils. And you don't come out at the end thinking anybody has tried to make you think any less of Morecambe and Wise. You've just been told the story of the beginning. I suspect that my view of these kind of things has probably been poisoned by that notorious BBC Four season from a few years ago. I mean, that was, that was actually quite a long time ago now. It was about 2008, I think it was. With the, the Steptoe drama that they can't show anymore and the, the Hattie Jakes drama and uh, who was it, Ken Stott as, as Hancock and what have you. And maybe, yeah, maybe I'm being unfair. In That's an approach instances. you can take and it is the easiest and laziest approach, but it's not the only approach. If a story is interesting enough in itself, you can actually tell a, an interesting story about nice people getting what they want as long as you show they worked for it and things happen. I think they could do another Morecambe and Wise play because you've got that moment when, in short succession, they fall out with Lou Grade, Eric has a heart attack, and their writers leave them. That's high drama! And each one of those steps, it could be the end of Morecambe and Wise, and we know, watching it that it's actually the beginning of them passing from being popular to being legendary. This is more fun than talking about how you being served. It is, actually. Yeah, I know we're getting massively off topic, but the hell of it. So what I would say back to that is, well, even though I've never seen it, I do appreciate that I've had very, very good feedback about Eric and Ernie, the drama. And yeah, I will get around to watching it one day because I know it's good. So yeah, I've got no objection to that. As far as this Lone Hardy thing is concerned, if it turns out that it's absolutely 100% accurate and they don't try and uh, script any phony falling out between the two of them, great, but uh, I'll be stunned because, let's face it, it's a Hollywood film and a nice little story for 90 minutes, which is completely factually accurate. That's not really Hollywood, is it? That's not what they do. So, uh, that, that's why. problem here. That's why I'm so. Are you being sort of, served? That, that, that's are why, you being served, right? Remember? Yeah, I got, well, yeah we'll, we'll come back to it. Don't worry about it. It's all right. People know what we're like by now. How bloody long have we been doing this? Three and a half years? People know we ramble. ramble. It's okay. Don't worry about it. So. Yeah, you went until um, they make the film about us. Who's going to play you? Who's going to play me? I was thinking maybe there could be uh, motion capture involved <laughs> and CGI. Um, yeah, okay. So, admittedly, I was sort of I was looking at two different things there, and one of them had nothing to do with I being served. As far as Mark and Wise is concerned, forget it. And I know somebody who's seen that show that was taped at Salford. This was actually done as part of a sitcom season. I've seen the press releases. They did two sketch shows as part of the sitcom <laughs> season. As far as I know, they did this Mark and Wise show, and they did also a new Will Sabbath show. And and the person who saw them both uh, said they both were perfectly fine as as you know in of themselves. I suspect that if you were in the audience and you saw this Mark and Wise show, if it was like a summer season or something, and it was pissing down outside, yeah, you might enjoy it for an hour. But to do a new Mark and Wise show on television, God. Are we really that are we really that desperate for ideas that we're just actually going to say, yeah, Mark and Wise, like like I know you've said before, it's a brand. It's not the people, it's a brand. That's the thing, and that is the thing that new Are You Being Served made me feel. It's really the mindset I think of the twenty first century BBC that what's important. It's not the people, it's the wonderful brands, and that somehow you can just make Are You Being Served without the involvement of any of the original people. And, well, yes, you can. 
I don't doubt if it passed down far enough, you could get local theatre companies doing something like that, and that would be worthwhile. But it's why have they done this? And they've really done this, yeah, piggybacking partially off, still open all hours. There's this thing that it's kind of set slightly after the end of the original series. But the idea hasn't moved on or evolved. I don't see this has any particular reason for being other than people have heard of it. And this is a bit like I'm saying about Pinwright's Progress versus Hancock's Half Hour. And you always get people, well, people don't know what Pinwright's Progress is. That's because nobody's telling them. And eventually, the sum total of knowledge will shrink if we only tell people things they already know. It's cynical. And yet it's trying to play on people's warmth. Oh, you remember them. Oh, we all love them, don't we? Right. That's my cynical view of things. I wouldn't have watched this voluntarily. Breaking it down, talking about the cast, there's different things happening in different places. There's some people who are really just taking it their own way. John Chalice was acting like Frank Thornton had never existed. Like Captain Peacock was a John Chalice part. He'd taken it in his own direction, and I think he pulled it off. He was just playing Captain Peacock as it was on paper, and it's possible that it's the kind of part that you can do that quite easily. Arthur Smith. Arthur Smith didn't quite work for me because I had very strong memories of Arthur English. And I know you liked him. I just think they should have given him a different name. He just seemed a, a different character. He he seemed more... There's just something coarser about Arthur Smith's delivery <laughs> when he's talking about Bristol. It might be the same kind of dialogue, but it just seems coarser when he does it. And it's fine. He's funny. He, he's a funny man, but... It, it, that was weird for me. You've just reminded me of something. There's this very, very slightly off topic, but I'm just going to mention it in a way because we're going to come on in a second to one issue I had with this show about the language that's used in it. There's an episode, a particularly good episode from series eight, and Captain Peacock has been accused of having put his hand down a fellow employee's blouse in order to retrieve some blancmange, and this has caused problems at home. And Everybody around the table is discussing this uh, in, in their normal way, and of course they're all being sort of prim and proper and polite, and and you know as as they would be on the shop floor. And then Mister Spooner suddenly says, "What are you talking about? He's done. He's put his hand in a pair of bristles to get us some blancmange. Can understand all the fuss to be given her one." And the audience reacts. It, it, the audience laughs, but it's also like, "Blame me. That's a, that's a bit that's a bit near, isn't it? That's a bit strong." <laughs> and of course, that's exactly the response it's supposed to get because. He's supposed to have like slightly overstepped the mark. And that's the response he gets from the people at the table as well. Whereas, I'll come on to that in a second, but yeah, I had a few issues with some of the dialogue in this. But Nikki Wardley and Sherry Houston were doing good impressions, I thought. I thought they kind of captured the way they were in the original series, and that was working. Justin Edwards felt a bit lost. I found him very likeable, but I couldn't help feeling, I wish you weren't playing Mr. Rombold. I wish somebody took you to one side and said, have you got anything you'd like to be in? Is there anything else? Can we cre create a Justin Edwards show? Yeah, it's sort of falling between two stools, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Justin Edwards, he's been in, he's been in an absolute ton of different shows, but I, I, most recently I sort of associate him with the thick of it. And yeah, it'd be really nice actually to see him as the, the lead guy on a sitcom. Uh, well, actually, because one person, I wouldn't name him because he's, he's not here to actually say it himself, but one person that we were speaking to just recently thought he was he was like the standout guy in this. And so everybody's sort of got different views, everybody's got different opinions, everybody's got different likes and dislikes about this. 
And Oh, it's all subjective. We can all go home. Well, it is, isn't it, really? But then if I argue that case, then that invalidates the last three and a half years of this podcast. So, can't have that. <laughs> Roy Barraclough. I don't really remember Mr. Granger that well. Out of all the guys who... He seemed to be doing okay, but part of that was his Roy Barraclough-ness. If you were sort of ranking the different actors in this version according to how close they were to their originals, then I would say Roy Barraclough was absolutely spot on as far as half a prof. What did you think of new Mr. Humphreys? This is probably the character that, that I liked the least in this. I think, in a way, this actually helped me to finally, after all these years, put my finger on what's wrong with Odd Man Out. Because I've said many times before that from the little clips that I'd seen of it and what I'd read about it, I was expecting Odd Man Out to be, as far as I was concerned, the greatest sitcom ever made. And the day I finally got to see an episode of it, I could not believe it. I was like, finally going to get to see it. And it's going to be like absolutely everything is turned up to 11. It's like, it's going to be the kind of innuendo that's this borderline stuff you get in Viz, for goodness sake. And then just everybody's spare acting. And I thought, it's going to be great. And it wasn't at all. It was a huge letdown. And I never really sort of worked out why. And now I get it. And it's sort of thanks to Jason Watkins' portrayal of Mr. Humphreys. Mr. Humphreys is... In some ways flamboyant, in some ways he's camp, obviously very good uh, at his role at Grace Brothers, and he has the sort of respect of all the members of the staff, such as Captain Peacock, even though Captain Peacock doesn't necessarily approve of Mr. Humphrey's extracurricular activities, for example. But he's, he's a likeable character. The key thing about John Inman's portrayal of Mr. Humphrey's is that he's vulnerable. That's the really important bit. And Neville in Odd Man Out doesn't have any vulnerability about him. And I think that that's the key as to why that show doesn't work. And again, Jason Watkins in this, there's no vulnerability to Mr. Humphreys. Got all the other boxes ticked, he's camp, and he's, he's, he's witty and, and so on. But there's one episode of original series where Mr. Humphreys comes into the department with his Paddington bear, for example. And that sort of says a bit more about Mr. Humphreys than really any of the sort of dialogue that you would have gotten, like this episode, for example. His little phone calls with his mother, for example. They reveal exactly what Mr. Humphreys is like. And maybe, if this goes to a series, maybe we'll see a bit of that, because let's face it, Jason Watkins is, is, is an excellent actor. He's perfectly capable of doing that, if that's what he's given. But there wasn't any of that in here. It, was, it just felt like uh, he was doing camp. It was like if you had somebody... This, this is very, very unfair. I mean, I don't mean this to come across the way it's going to... But it's like if you had somebody on Copycats and they were doing Mr. Humphreys, they would do all the camp stuff. They wouldn't do the, the, the important bits. I'm not even sure that it was like an impression. He was just camp. It was like he hadn't... Maybe he'd taken the choice not to watch John Inman too closely. <laughs> he said John Humphreys. <laughs> he didn't watch him at all. But that, that, was, that was just a, a sort of uh, personal choice, artistic direction. And the one bit I said was that he got them, he got his big line kind of wrong. When he's asked, are you free? And he looks side to side and goes, I'm free. And everybody goes, oh, clap, clap, clap. And so in the original, he doesn't say I'm free. He sings it. I'm free. It's a little two-note phrase with a trill on it. And there's just a certain, the eternal question. How far 
can you take a character? How how much can you recast a character? And I'm not a fan of are you being served, but when you're saying Mr. Humphreys is this, Mr. Humphreys is that to me, Mr. Humphreys is John Inman. And it also comes down to, because it's weird, if, if you say it, well, you can't ever bring anything back, it's too prescriptive. I had this conversation in my head so many times about Dad's Army, which is I didn't want it to happen, but I couldn't come up with a good enough reason for it not to happen. If these characters are now eternal, if Captain Mannering is an eternal archetype of English language humour to stand alongside Bertie Wooster and Pooter, why can't he be reinterpreted? And part of it is, why? Why is this being brought back? Has somebody sat through all of Dad's army and gone, I've seen a new approach? Or have this Dad's army, that's something people like. It's horrible, so I'm just... It's just coming down to me necessarily accusing people of bad faith or cynicism. That it's just like, this is an easy commission, this is an easy sell. And they're probably somewhere between the two extremes, but not close enough to just like, I've got this fantastic idea for a way of doing Are You Being Served? Let's do it. This felt like it's one of our most recognisable comedy brands. Is it fair to say this has been controversial? This season, a lot of people. Um, I'm not. I'm not just talking about like like everybody because everybody on Twitter, you know, everybody has their say. Everybody was watching the show and was on Twitter. They're all having their say. You know, like like I. You're closer to the ground. If if I talk, if I mention it to people over here, I'm not going to get quite the same. Apart from some people going, "You're kidding." The what? The remaking? Are you being served? Hmm. Why? I I was tweeting about the show whilst I was watching it, and I was watching other people tweet about it as well. A lot of people, comedians and actors, have had their say about this season as a whole, not just are you being served, but also Alf Garnet and everything else, it has proved sort of quite divisive. I mean, some people sort of look at it as, as well, why ever not? Why does it have to be set in stone? You know, well, why why can't you bring back characters? And, and exactly as you're saying just now, I mean, how many times have they done Jeeves and Wooster, for goodness sake? Have any two actors got the, the right to say that they're the definitive version of it? And yet other actors and comedians and so on have said, look, why don't you just make some new stuff? And of course, they are making new stuff. They are making new stuff as part of this. Season. And it's also partially the fact that we have great characters created by television. There was no Captain Mannering to speak of before Arthur Law. There's only that brief period between the script being written and the part being cast. And it changes things and it means it's a different problem because the first time anybody became aware of Captain Mannering, it was Arthur Law. But it, yeah, it partially just comes down to. Trust. Well, back to Morecambe and Wise. The fact that that's being commissioned, that's happening. Morecambe and Wise were Morecambe and Wise. You might want to do something that captures the spirit, but just saying here is a new Morecambe and Wise show feels wrong, and a new Mr. Humphreys is somewhere on the perimeter of that argument. Yeah, I mean, I understand people may they may pursue the argument that Mark and Wise on the stage are two personas. It's not actually just Eddie Mark and Eddie Wise being themselves. But I think particularly in, in cases like that where you've got, say, say, say like stand-up comedians, for example, you know, I know that Jack D on the stage is not going to be identical to Jack D off the stage. But the idea that in 40 years' time somebody would come along and say, hey, look, it's the new Jack D, and it's just some fella doing Jack D's stuff, but he isn't Jack D. 
this is the point where you start to think, okay, well, this is getting very, very uh, flimsy, you know, this defense. And I'm actually, I'm holding off tilt right now. I'm holding off asking this question. I've got a really hard, there's no black and white thing about this question, though. It's how you look at the approach people are taking to it, both the people creating it and the audience. Is it being made because people said there's still mileage in this, there's still things to be said within this format? Are the audience responding to it because it's like it's it's good to have them back? There was a hole in my life in that shape, or is it? I just want to cling to what I've always had. Don't make me think about things that I don't already know. Is there a cutoff point as far as this kind of thing is concerned? Because I was just thinking that just now, for example, say this was 1977, and you were told the rag trade is coming back. You've been watching the rag trade previously when it was on BBC some 15 years earlier. The rag trade comes along. And you could take the few, oh, well, there's Peter Jones and Miriam Carlin, but who's this Christopher Beeney guy? He's not Reg Varney. And Diane Langton, she's not Barbara Windsor. You can't just replace people like that. Now, is that fair comment? And if your reaction to that is, well, yeah, but fundamentally it's still the same because it's still, you know, like the same main actors and it's still the same writers and so on, you think, okay, well, on the sliding scale, at what point is there... Where's the cutoff point? When we talk about porridge in a moment, for example, the first thing we're going to say about it is it's still Clement and Lafreniere that's writing it. Is the cutoff point that? Is it who's writing it, who's behind it, who's perhaps producing or directing it? With this show, Are You Being Served, there is absolutely no link with Are You Being Served, Mark 1. So does that go beyond the cutoff point then? Or can you argue, for example, well, it's still BBC. You know, at least it's, at least it's not, you know, uh, like the Australian stage Steptoe and Son or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like somebody is doing a straightforward rip-off of it or something like that. But I mean, what, what, what is the cutoff point? And there's no, there's, not, there's no right answer to this, but sometimes it just sort of feels that if, if every single link with the original has been severed, then surely that's the point at which you just sort of say, well, that's time to leave it be then, you know? Still open all hours is still Roy Clark. He knows Granville, and it's still Granville. But the the one thing I did tweet about this on the night was that I'm absolutely convinced that this will go to a series. And I'm still absolutely convinced of it. And we've watched this twice, and I'll tell you, it didn't improve with a second viewing. But I think that the people who like it are going to be quite vocal about that, and I think that it will come back for a series in that Sunday evening slot, pre-country file slot. I say actually about pre-country file slot, as in like sort of we're still open all hours, it's just now like the Sunday evening slot and what have you. Some of the dialogue in this I really didn't like because it was BBC Two innuendo. Massive brownie. <sighs> I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. I didn't. I like remember s- your reaction to that in the trailer. Yeah, that, when I saw that, I thought, "Oh my god! If it's all like that, this is going to be horrible." Some of the conversation between Mister Rumble and his secretary, for example, where they're sort of they're hearing and and getting the wrong end of the stick and what have you. Some of that was just like, I like bottom. But I, I like I like like the bottom universe, and I like the Are You Being Served universe, but I don't want the two of them to meet. That's Are You Being Served, and if it comes back, well, we'll, we'll see. Well, one thing, I actually, the last thing I'll say about this, I said to my friend uh, the other day that uh, I was a bit concerned that if this comes back, eventually we're going to have like a sort of live report to 96 episode about Mr. Humphrey's home life. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't want that. No, don't start showing me that the sadness of... Mrs. Slocum when she closes the door behind her and home to an empty house at night. Don't and don't cats stuffed. <laughs> Interesting, you said cat. 
You didn't take the low road. I'm just interested. Well, <laughs> I was trying to I was trying to get the perfect syntax, and it's just not in my nature to. I really don't like those jokes. It's like in place of a joke. Well, you mentioned about how you didn't like the fact that Mr. Conway was reacting to those lines. In he the reacted show. right the first time she says it. Conway's eyes kind of glaze over, like he's trying to take on board. Okay, I did I hear that right? And that was a really good reaction. <laughs> but yes, then later he's he's finding it funny. It feels it feels like a Marx Brothers film where somebody just goes to grab you. Hang on a minute. Wipes his lip. Your moustache is painted on. <laughs> the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, if you start tampering with sort of unspoken rules like that, then where the hell are you going to end up? You know? Porridge. Amazingly, I actually quite liked porridge. I thought that was going to be, I thought it was going to be horrible. I've got to be honest. That one, from when I saw the trailer, I just thought, oh, this is going to be grim. And. Maybe it was because my expectations were so low for it that I was actually sort of pleasantly surprised. But I liked Kevin Bishop in the role. I thought he was he was quite likable. And I really liked the twist where they had one of Fletcher's contemporaries as new Fletcher's roommate, or cellmate. I liked the fact that they didn't do like a new Godborough. It wasn't just retreading, you know, a well-worn path. So that was a nice twist. And show itself for a revival the topic was pretty good because he's supposed to be like a cyber criminal now and all this kind of stuff he knows coding and what have you so i'm not absolutely sure of all four of them i would say that this is a one that's least that feels least like a pilot or an intended pilot it didn't really feel like because there's no big cliffhanger at the end of this whereas in the other shows for example we had like the seeds being sown for future storylines but this one it, it actually felt more like it was just Clement and Lafrenia doing a one-off I don't know in all honesty if a series came along I would take a look at the first episode of it I don't know if I'd be a regular viewer in all honesty but didn't have strong opinions about that I didn't like the cellmate rather I didn't like the fact that the cellmate says oh I knew your grandfather because this is porridge right linking the two together hmm he didn't say it like that. <laughs> he did in my perception. <laughs> I didn't like the screws being photocopies of the original. No, I didn't. I didn't like the, the new version of um, Mr. Mackay because he was trying to imitate some of Fulton Mackay's mannerisms, and I thought, no, don't do that. I didn't like the speech at the end. Ah, little victories. Y- yes, yes, we know. We know that's what it's all about. Don't state it outright. And also. New Fletch had won a massive victory. He'd won way, way too much. I thought at the end, it's like he's put so many things over on the system that uh, it just felt unrealistic. I don't have much to say about it. I just didn't enjoy it. And for some reason, it annoyed me. (laughs) Maybe because making a good show out of material that's outstanding is more annoying than making a ho-hum show out of material that is itself kind of workmanlike. This, now, now, here's, now here's an interesting thing, and I'm not aware that anybody's actually asked Clement Lafrenet about this, but I would be really interested actually to, to, to know this. I wonder if the point at which this was first suggested, do you think that they would have considered actually writing a 21st century episode of Porridge, but exactly that, so nothing to do with Fletcher, no link at all to the previous characters, a sitcom about prison life in 2016. However, I think if they had pitched that, 
I think the BBC eventually would have said, oh, the thing is... Well, some people have theorised that Still Open All Hours possibly happened because Roy Clark said, I'm still working, I'm still writing, do you want anything? Could you bring something back, maybe? Yes, I think that would have been very different. Okay. Show I've been watching recently. I've been watching Series 1. I gather Series 2 is out there, and I've heard it's not as good as Series 1. Show called Angie Tribeca. And it is 21st Century Police Squad. But it's not called Police Squad. It has no direct link with Police Squad, but it is. It's 21st Century Police Squad. But it captures that vibe. Constant gags. You have to watch each episode at least twice to get everything. If you watch it with somebody, you're always having to pause and rewind because one of you seen something the other one didn't. It's very, very silly. And I like it. But it's not called Police Squad. They've not licensed it. It, It's a thing that I keep having... (laughs) freakouts about sometimes is oh everything's as good as it used to be oh we don't need the old stuff because we oh we don't need the beatles because we have oasis that was a thing we had in the 90s if everything was as good as it used to be we wouldn't have to be told and the new replacements would just capture the spirit and yet not resemble it at all bit like some of the claims people made for reeves and mortimer in the 90s about them being the new Morecambe and wise which actually that irritated me don't tell us. I know I've just all said all that about Angie Tribeca, but that's to make a comparison. It's cute when I do it. <laughs> I think that in that specific instance with, with Reeves and Mortimer, I think that Vic Reeves, uh, he, he, he went through a period of actually having something of an obsession about Eddie Markham, where he would have like photographs of himself in like newspapers and magazines, post photographs where he was actually aping in an Eric Morgan pose. Exactly. Sometimes... But it was really the press releases and the hype. That was the thing. The hype was telling us. The hype was telling us everything's okay. Everything's fine. Oh, you, you miss Morgan and Wise, it's okay. We have the new Morgan and Wise. We've replaced them. Go to sleep. Buy. Consume. Yeah, sorry, I know I'm going in that <laughs> But yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, I know. I know I'm not you. saying that these things exist as part of a grand conspiracy. They exist because it makes people's jobs easier than they should be. Well, I I had a big, big problem with I can't even remember now, was this last year or the year before? It was our it was our twenty fifteen, twenty fourteen, I can't remember which one it was. But the BBC's Christmas trailer and like that like you know like uh, sort of like three weeks it's, it's nowadays like to do it like three weeks before the bloody day but it's like after strictly here comes our first unveiling of our big christmas trailer and almost everything that was in the trailer was archive material not even archive material that they were showing this year it was like christmas with the bbc it means markman wise it means the two ronnies it means the royal family it means the great war well, exactly. Yes, it, it means it means EastEnders, as in like old EastEnders with people you recognise, and so all this kind of stuff. And that was it. And eventually, it sort of gets to like a couple of clips of what's going to be on this year, and the whole thing was like, you know, Christmas, it's BBC, isn't it? You've always watched us, so therefore, go on, watch us again. But there was nothing in it at all, barely anything about it, about what they were actually going to do that year. Whereas an amazing contrast was Sky's adverts for Sky Movies, totally set in 2016. They had old films available if you want to watch them, but everything in that trailer was focused about what the premieres were, what the new things were going to be on the channel, what's going to make Christmas 2015 special 
what are you going to associate with Christmas 2015 when you look back on it? But if you look back on that trailer, it's like, well, what? I can't even bloody remember what year it was because it doesn't matter what year it was from. It could have been from any bloody year. It's not a BBC problem, though, is it? It's a British problem. The entire country is going, oh, we're still Britain like it used to be. I'm actually going to slightly disagree That's with you. That's sung by there. Paul Nicholas. I'm going to slightly, I'm going to slightly disagree with you there because well, British, you're Scottish. And well, eventually that will be different. Oh, I knew, I knew, you I, can't stop it. I knew, I knew cultural differences would come to the fore eventually. But no, I, I think I'm going to slightly disagree with you there because yeah, this this is certainly not a unique thing to the BBC. But I think the BBC is one of the main. Oh yes, they're one of the main culprits. But they they didn't start the fire. I remember was it UK Gold? When they were doing that whole at-home thing, and the trailers were, Home, it's the country where we do this, and we do that, and we do that, and we do a bunch of twee humble brags, because that's what Britain's all about. British problems. Oh, ho, 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 ho. you stupid country! <laughs> I thought you were going to do a I'm Chris sorry, jump. I'm just in a really anti-British mood today, or rather anti-Britain as it is. <sighs> Let's just reboot Britain. But that's what they're doing here. But these bloody things. No, that's remaking. That's papering over the cracks. Let's just—I don't know. Let's just stop Britain for a while. Let it idle, and then switch the ignition and see what things grow out of that soil. Not artificial hydroponic nonsense. Yeah, I'll go with this. So we didn't really have strong opinions about porridge, to be perfectly honest. Young hyacinth, which I was kind of looking forward to regardless of whether I was going to enjoy it or not, because Roy Clark fascinates me. Sometimes I like him, sometimes I don't, but he's clearly got a voice and he's clearly got a point of view, and it felt like somebody had been careful to go through this and stop it from being too Roy Clark-ish. There were just little bits, like, he's got a moustache, what's he hiding behind it? That felt Roy Clark-ish. But this felt strangely neutered, and it wasn't a sitcom. It did feel like it was... A lot of people have said the comparisons are with Call the Midwife. We, we've we made your nostalgic period drama, which again, you can you can look at the past, feel cosy, but also say, aren't things so much better now? It was get, and this is probably something we won't get if Young Hyacinth goes to series, but a lot of period dramas now, it's like, and here is somebody who just so happens to have the exact point of view of somebody who works in the media in 2016, and they're going to look around and go, well, isn't all this jolly horrible? And aren't we lucky? Aren't you at home lucky to live in the 2010s when you don't have to worry about any of this and our people are not committing crimes against their own people? We are clean. I know I'm making that sound like they live or something. (laughs) It's far more subtle than that, but I always like bits of the Twilight Zone where it's like, ha, the monster is you at home. Think about the terrible things that you might be doing in your own life, okay? And that way we can all be better people. I gather the continuity wasn't too strong in Young Hyacinth that it contradicted some things. You're not a huge fan of keeping up appearances, are you? It's Potter done wrong. I would I would like Young Red vs. Potter. <laughs> well, I actually spent quite a while watching Young Hyacinth. I was trying to place who it was that was playing Hyacinth because I knew I'd seen her in something before. And actually, it's an actress called Kerry Howard. And she was in something that I watched this year, made this year, that I enjoyed. Can you believe that? After everything I've just said, it was a show on BBC Three called Witless, and it featured a nice little guest appearance, a nice little turn by BBC Sports John Inverdale, funnily enough, in four three. Everybody else was in sixty nine. He was in four three. That's absolutely that's absolutely true. That's that's true. Yeah. So 
I, I, I liked her portrayal of Hyacinth. I thought she got the mannerisms absolutely spot on. And the speech patterns. It yes. wasn't so much yeah. a matter of doing the voice. It was a matter of actually getting the intonation. It seemed to run out of steam halfway through. Once it's her vacuuming drunk, it seems like it's lost its way and is not really sure what it's doing anymore. I wasn't sure about the portrayal of Daisy. Because mm. Daisy, in Keep Up Appearances, she is... Well, she's sort of like... You can see the state of the, the place that she's in alongside Onslow. But she's quite kind-natured and, and quite romantic, to the point of foolishly, in, in the case of Onslow. And also a little bit naive, whereas, whereas in this, she, she seemed quite sort of hard-headed. She was like the most sensible one of, of, of the group. Uh, Rose was Rose. She was exactly as you'd expect Rose to be. Uh, one thing I was puzzled about is why we didn't have any Richard, because I was sort of thinking that that might be like the the cliffhanger, so to speak. It's like, oh, there's this new fella called Richard, and he's just in the area or something like that. And, oh, how are they going to get together and all that kind of thing? But no, it was it was Hyacinth walking out with her fella who wasn't Richard. So that was that threw me a little bit, but and we had no sign of Onzo either. There was some interesting stuff with her whole approach to class that she felt that rich people cheating on each other was okay, <laughs> but. Just sort of like flopped part way through, and then Violet didn't. Violet had a personality that just seemed to be a combination of the other two non-Hyacinth sisters. I suppose Violet is probably the, the most difficult one to cast, really, because she's the one that we know the least about. Now, surely she should be the easiest to cast. Then she's blank slate, and you could have given Daisy's hard-headedness to her. Well, actually, that would fit because, of course, she's she's supposed to be the the, the sister who's. You know, sort of well to do, and she's got all the the different bits and pieces, you know, the the trinkets and and, and what have you that the high simp is always determined that she's going to announce to everybody else listening in in the household and so on. So that would sort of make sense. By the way, do you in keeping up appearances? Do you like the bits when she suddenly bursts into song? Not really, no. Oh, okay. Don't go and see Florence Foster Jenkins because that's <laughs> high bursts into song. The movie with David Haig and John Sessions. Well, hey, John Sessions actually. Turned up in Friday Night Dinner, most recent series, as a carpet cleaner. And at first I didn't recognise him at all. I'm thinking, I I, rec- I sort of recognise him, but who is that? Oh, my DL is John Sessions. So, okay, what you were saying there, just going to get off topic again, but never mind. What you were saying there about how Hyacinth's got this view that it's okay for upper class people to have a dalliance, but but not the hoi polloi. Um, is it, am I using that expression correctly, the hoi polloi? You know what I mean. Yeah. The, the, yeah the, the, Scoffers. Yeah. I think there's probably something in that as far as the British psyche is concerned. I think there's probably some truth to that. I think that... Oh, yes. I think one of the reasons Keeping Up Appearances is so successful is that it it does have a truth in it. It just also is very repetitive and has Patricia Routledge falling into a hedge with no good reason. <laughs> well, there's good reason. It's because the dog was barking, jumped out of the car. But, okay, so I, I think... I could see this coming back. I think they're all going to come back. I think all four of them are going to get commissioned a series because none of them bombed. I could see Young Hyacinth going down the Rock and Chips route of having one-offs. I could see it having key milestones, key elements in Hyacinth's life. She meets Richard, for example, something along those lines. I think you could do it where it was... It might benefit from being longer than half an hour. It might benefit from being... 50 minutes or so, in, in, in that manner, and, and doing it as an occasional thing, maybe at Christmas or something like that. So we've said, there is that problem of how far can you detach something 
from its original people and have it thrive. And the one show that seemed to have the most positive response, as far as I could see, was the one that had pretty much everybody involved, and that was Goodnight Sweetheart. Now, we can talk about that, but got a feeling there's something missing here. I think you are right. I think that we need the assistance of somebody who is a huge Goodnight Sweetheart fan. Joining us from Sitcom Lovers Corner blog is G Baker. Hello. So, principally then, because I knew this one would be of huge interest to yourself, I think I actually messaged you on Twitter the day that they announced it. It was like, it's coming back. Goodnight Sweetheart's coming back. Fantastic. And I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a hoax because you don't really associate Goodnight Sweetheart with one of the classics. I kind of see it as like a little cult, I don't know, like a little niche sitcom that not everybody really knows or gets, really. So when it they said that was coming back. I was like, really? Wow. Goodnight, sweetheart. Although it has had repeats. It was on gold for a little while. It was on ITV free for a little while, strangely enough. Most recently, it's actually been on Forces TV, which has also been showing things like Get Some In, Larby and Esmond, and Belko, for example. And I was a bit surprised when they announced this, thinking, well, I mean, they've not even repeated it on BBC latterly, so I wasn't entirely sure. But from what I can tell, it seems to have had a largely positive reaction. It seems to be quite significantly, by some margin, the majority of people who were tweeting about it on the night were in favour of the new show. So yeah. what did you think yourself? Yeah, it was it was good. The first five minutes, um, I was sort of thinking, oh, this is a bit painful, really. And obviously, there's quite a lot of unanswered questions still. Like, obviously, they appear to be back in the Royal Oak. It's like, how, how has that happened? But I guess it, you weren't really meant to focus on that. You were just meant to take it on the chin and enjoy it. Marks and, and Gren have issued an explanation of that. Oh, have they? Yes, apparently. I think it might have been on Twitter but it was, or Facebook. It was something about uh, the bar in the West End, the craze got involved and muscled them out. And that's why they ended up back in the Royal Oak. You just got the magic hand with 17 years. A lot can happen. <laughs> no mention of Clement Attlee at all, which would have been absolutely spot on because there's a new biography about him just now. So they could have tied it in with that. Gee, what did you think of the son and the daughter? How did you think that they worked as far as new cast members were concerned? I thought they they worked quite well. I was a bit unsure of Michael. He seemed a bit of an oddball. But then I started thinking, well, hang on a minute. He was sort of like raised almost and babysat by Noel Coward a bit. So it's probably his influence that's rubbed off and why he's so like poetic and how he was. But it's a shame that they didn't really explore... Michael and Nelly a bit more because I mean obviously if there was a new series they probably would it's hard to pack in because obviously it's about Gary but I would have liked to see a bit more of Gary and Michael because obviously it was very 2016 centric. I was wondering if they were trying to make a point with how Michael's so politically engaged and banned the bomb and somebody the same age in 2016 isn't as far as Marx and Gren are writing and if it does turn into a series there might be points when Gary will despair of his daughter being so unengaged and then occasionally we'll find that Michael's a bit oppressive. Yeah. Was there actually, do you think there was enough time spent at the Royal Oak? Because I got the impression, yeah, I got the impression that it was like, okay, he's here now and then before you know it, way he's off and then it was like for the last couple of minutes he was back. But I mean, I'll get the other had half an hour and I understand that getting them back into 2016, that was a key thing. But it did feel slightly unbalanced didn't it definitely because i mean i preferred phoebe anyway in the series and i was always more interested in what was going on in the royal oak than what was going on with yvonne but on my notes that i've actually written i've put that they've made yvonne obviously a lot more likable than phoebe and phoebe seems to be a bit 
more stupid than she was and a bit obviously duller like the rural oak that was obviously a dull sort of setting it was quiet all that so obviously it's obviously flipped it on its head so he wants to go back to 2016 and he wants to change his life again because he gets bored but no I think I think there should have been a bit more balance and a bit more explanation as to why he wasn't really that settled with Phoebe even though he loved her and he loved his family why he was a bit bored but he was only a bit bored that was the thing I found interesting I thought it might start with him being a nervous wreck but you look at the opening scene he's quite comfortable there he seems happy being Phoebe's husband happy being Michael's father it's just that occasionally he can remember all the benefits of the 1990s. I think it's it's something they're carrying across. He doesn't want to live in one time or the other. But there was a faint sense I got that he was really happy being a 1962 man who could pop into 2016 for a curry. Just that bit, he's just talking about the foods he could get. But there wasn't any sense that he was being eaten up inside. Okay, one thing. If I found myself back the year I was born, 1920, um, anyway, that's not the important part. The last thing I would do is go to where I am being born. Because it's like, how does he know that that's what's going to get him to open the portal again and get back there? It's like... well, well, his whole thing is he wants to prevent himself being dropped on the head. And of course, it's a stable time loop, so he is the one who drops himself. Yeah. But if I was back in time, I would avoid my parents. I would avoid myself. The chances of completely trashing my personal history. I was disappointed that his father wasn't actually played by Roger Sloman with like an Adam Faith wig or something like that you know, to keep continuity. But th- this business about how he was talking about all the curries that he wanted, I was thinking, well, why don't you just make one? Yes, he lives in London. He can get the ingredients. He lives in a world hub. Yes. Bound to be someone that got a curry recipe and access to curry spices. He's just lazy. Travelling through time is easier than preparing a curry by himself. <laughs> Gary, it probably I thought of a really horrible way that this show could have begun, and I'm glad it didn't. Instead of it being 1962, what if it was 1963, and instead of PC Deadman saying to Gary, God, it's like you can see into the future. How, how on earth did you know that the Polaris uh, crisis was, was going to end happily? He's like... How did you know that Kennedy was going to get shot today? Because he's got them all in the pub. He's saying, like, you definitely want to be watching around about so half past six UK time. Get the TV on, right? Something big's going to happen because that would have been really grim and just ghastly. Well, a couple but, of guys of in dark suits would drag him off to Grosvenor Square. I am wondering if it comes back to series, are they going to deal with that when they get yes. to November 63? Well, not so much not so much that, but are they going to deal with the fact that Gary has known what's coming up for the whole of the 1950s and that this must be troubling for him? Surely that's got to be uncomfortable for him. Another thing's occurring to me, a question. In the previous 17 years, Yvonne has known that her husband is lost in time and hasn't checked any records to find him. Shouldn't Gary's past somehow... Wouldn't you go checking electoral records, especially now, Ancestry.com, .co.uk, all the ancestries, and find my past? She could find Gary's death certificate. (laughs) I I just think, has she really consciously avoided that, or do you think she would go looking to find if Gary was still out there? Or just out of curiosity, what happened? What kind of life did he live from 1945 onwards? There should be traces of him. 
I don't know. I think if Yvonne, when she's given that news by Ron at the end of Series 6, do you think that perhaps she's going to just say, look, it's best if I just move on, if I just cut myself off from this completely, because otherwise she'd send herself in the twist if she was constantly Very disciplined looking for her. traces of Definitely. Me. I think also, obviously, since she had his child, I think obviously she thought, oh, it's probably better that we just move on and she's Gary's pretty much dead to her anyway, so she concentrates on the future and her daughter's future. And Ron, Ron wasn't curious then. I'd have thought Ron would have been, yeah. But then Ron might not be that clever as to go about doing it, or he might set off to look for Gary and then get waylaid. That aside, I really enjoyed this new episode, and I was surprised actually, Till, because you said to me right before I watched this, you said, oh, I've seen this tweet that says, oh, it was the worst possible way they could have brought it back. It was just terrible. And so I thought, God, what's it going to be like? So what was that all about? Why was somebody saying it was it was dreadful like that? Different strokes for different folks. Well, it's part of the point I've made earlier on that one of the big problems in 2016 with any television program, and I think it's one of the reasons that now we're suddenly left with old proven brands, is everyone's a critic. Everyone is examining it right down to every dotted I and crossed T. And there was a point when I was watching Goodnight Sweetheart and thinking about all the things I could pick apart, and it didn't really get me over the fact that Goodnight Sweetheart is a delivery system for jokes and ideas, and I was laughing at the jokes. And there is a comfort food element to this show. There's a comfort food element to all the shows, even porridge, that have been brought back. But Goodnight Sweetheart was working on me. I was laughing at the jokes. I quite liked looking at the scenery. I, th- I was going to say, I think it's because obviously it's what we know. It's what we're comfortable with. It's the original cast, the original writers. It's the same setup. Obviously, it's changed slightly, but it's the same premise. We know we know Gary. We know what he's like. We know what's going to happen. Like you say, it's cosy comfort food, really. It's Yeah, and that's what made it enjoyable and watchable. And the thing is, as far as critiquing it, okay, critiquing it as a piece of entertainment is one thing but critiquing its plot and its structure and the realities of of what could and couldn't happen i mean it's ridiculous really because if you have any kind of depiction of time travel in anything unless it's like something like maybe like it's an absolutely serious drama or something quite dark or whatever we know that it's not possible and if it was possible then we know that every single action that happened would have consequences. So there's not really any point in sort of going down the road of saying, well, oh, hang on a minute, but he did this, so why isn't it like that? And so on, blah, 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 blah. But what do we think of Gary's reactions to the 2016 when he arrives back? Because I think, Till, you picked up that he, he seemed quite astonished by headphones, for example. Yes, smartphones shouldn't be that much. I mean, you'd expect a certain amount of technological progress. And so smartphones, they're like things he's already seen. It's basically, they're like, so it's, yeah, he's seen mobile phones and he's seen personal stereos and now everybody's mobile phone is also their personal stereo. But of course, the one bit that really rang true was then he's opening the phone boxes and one of them's a hipster cappuccino place. And that seemed like <laughs> some, a mistake he would make if you if completely missed the 21st century. Uh, actually, that would still confuse me now if that happened to me. So what did you think, Chi, about... Say, for example, when he goes into the mobile phone shop, I saw some people sort of arguing, say, oh, phone shops don't look like that. And then I saw other people arguing, saying, well, small independent ones actually do. They do, yeah. I wasn't really bothered about that. I was really more bothered about, like, obviously Gary's reaction. And obviously he was desperate to get in touch with Yvonne. And that was that was what's quite funny, that he 
wanted to speak to Yvonne like Yvonne had opened in with open arms and he was just expecting her to want to sit down and have a chat once he got back in touch I think that was more the thing and I quite like the joke he had with the um phone shop man and obviously made out that he'd been in prison I thought that was quite entertaining and when he does eventually meet up with I think Ron's reaction is absolutely spot on he would just Ron's been totally lost for Gary definitely it's like Gary had given him a purpose obviously once he got divorced and everything and he lost his business and he was just working at the print shop it was Gary that gave him a purpose obviously he was supplying Gary with the white fibers he was giving him excuses and alibis and he was existing because of Gary and Gary was obviously existing because of Ron so without Gary I think Ron would be at a loose end which is probably why he was at Yvonne's beck and call to hang on to the last bits of Gary and do you think that Yvonne's reaction do you think that that what did that fit you maybe like your expectations because our initial reaction will just be she's stunned to see him for a start but then sort of our anger towards him takes over definitely i mean if i was in Yvonne's shoes definitely and i guess obviously you he could he said he was stuck in the past and obviously ron explained that but obviously in the back of Yvonne's mind she still thought he preferred phoebe over to her so it could be like well did he actually get stuck has he just left me in the future and gone back into the past to set up home with phoebe full time so, yeah, I can understand her anger and everything, especially when she was left to raise a kid on her own. That's going to be a weird thing if they bring it back. The two-timing element's gone, and his present-day wife is furious at him. Yeah, because obviously when it started, it was sort of a romantic comedy, wasn't it? It was all about him sort of winning Phoebe's heart, and everybody wanted to see how that progressed. And now it's obviously going to be the way where he tries and wins Yvonne back, because that's what he's going to do. He loves himself so much, he thinks that eventually she'll come round and I don't know if that's actually going to work because if I was Yvonne you wouldn't take him back he's married someone else he's gone back in time he's cheated he's lied he's done every despicable thing under the sun she's not going to take him back so obviously there's the daughter there so they've got that sort of connection and that talking point but it's going to be more difficult I think and it's not going to have the same charm as the original because obviously the charm was that it was sort of oh yeah I love Gary and Phoebe together I want to see them I want to see how it goes that sort of thing so it'd be interesting so do we think that it is going to come back for a series till yourself first it got three and some million three point some million it got more viewers than Young Hyacinth it won the nine o'clock Friday night spot didn't it what do you think G? do you think it's likely to be yeah definitely i think after the reaction of everybody and obviously um people had said obviously before it had gone out that it was more like a pilot i think and how it's been well received i think yeah it's going to come back and yeah there's definitely opportunities for it to come back and there's definitely possible plots and things obviously it's not going to be the same as goodnight sweetheart originally was because obviously times have changed but it will be interesting to see obviously gary learn about the future and sort of learn about his own time and obviously he's got to adapt again so yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they did it because while I really wanted to come back, I'm not. Sure, I'm really not sure how it could work. Not fairness, if it would be as successful as it originally was. It really needs to be about parenthood, I suppose, really, because that's the thing that's going to take him back to 2016 is to see his daughter. So I imagine if it comes back like in a year later, we'll get the faint idea that he really hasn't been back to 2016. He's probably poked his head round the door but he hasn't actually been resumed his life. And it just gets to the point that he just he just wants to see her again. He just wants to see his child. Because she said, didn't she, when they were at the bus stop, that when she's 18, she's going to look for him because she wants to know him. So obviously he will have that at the back of his mind and he's not going to want to ignore that. Well, 
if it does come back for a series, I suspect that Gary will see her again, but he's going to see her because she wanders into the Royal Oak because she's got the power of time travel and as well. It has to prevent any interest sparking between her and Michael. Do you yes. know, I was thinking yeah. that actually, yeah. I will say this did get a positive review from my five-year-old niece who was in the room when I was watching it. It wasn't entirely accurate though, was it? Because I did. There was one. One. Well, she kept re-explaining the joke to me that there was this guy and he walked through this wall that was invisible, and then he walked back through the invisible wall, and there was a man there, and they were in the bathroom, and they both saw each other, and then they screamed. She explained this, and by the fourth time, she went, and then they kissed. <laughs> that should have been the end. That he didn't even. He didn't even go back to the Royal Oak in the end. It was just that the two of them in the cubicle. Off you go. End credits. One reason why I think that this will definitely come back is the success of Birds of a Feller on ITV. And if the BBC decides not to go ahead with a new series of this, I think that ITV would. And it's the only one of these four BBC One revivals that could do that, that could make that transition because being an independent production company. So, I, 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 yeah, I think it will. I think it will come back. And then they BBC. can bring back Snakes um, and Ladders. That's not going to happen. Should it come back for a series, or should it be the kind of thing like Rock and Chips, for example? Should it be an occasional thing? Should it come back for an occasional hour every once in a while? Maybe an occasional thing, actually, because you don't want to ruin a good thing. And while I'd absolutely love to see more, because watching that, there were so many loose ends that I felt needed to tie up, like why they've moved out of the Royal Oak, what's gone on, does Gary still own that mate fair flat, why is Ron living in Yvonne's basement, all that sort of stuff. I really want these questions to be answered and tied up. I want to know more about like what's going on with Reg now, what's going on. Because I always imagined Yvonne would be like this disheveled figure while she tried to not let Gary get her down. I always imagined that obviously at a breaker, people would find out about Gary and she'd be laughed and called crazy and all this stuff. She'd lose a lady title. So I quite like to see what's going on. But I think if it ran for like how Birds of a Feather is now, for like, done, like the fourth series, aren't they, on ITV? I don't know if they'd be able to sustain it for that long because obviously he doesn't know anything new, is he? He's not an exotic, mysterious figure that he was when he came back to the 40s. He could perk Phoebe up, give her all these treats, tell her all these things, give her encouragement. He can't do that because he can't go back to 2016 and tell Yvonne about what's going on in the 60s because she'll know most of this stuff anyway. And I can't really see him coming back to 1962 and talking about 2016 because he doesn't know enough about it yet, obviously. Is there any good reason why Gary should eventually clue in Phoebe as to what's been happening? Because, of course, Avon now knows, but Phoebe doesn't. So do we think there's any possibility that, that he'll end up going deliberately going back to 2016, so to speak, and then coming back uh, to the Royal Oak with an armful of newspapers and uh, what have you, and says to Phoebe, look, I'm going to tell you the whole truth i was thinking if they did make it into a series and they were going to end it like again like for good again they probably might do it that way but otherwise i can't i can't see it because i don't know i'm always one of these people that thought he loved phoebe more and what's the point in upsetting her because obviously if he loses phoebe as well he's lost everything he's lost Yvonne, he's lost his life in the future if he loses phoebe and michael and everything what's he got and he can't really survive on his own gary he needs people he needs to lie to people he needs to deceive and impress people with his lies and his knowledge of the future. So I, I don't see there being any point in him telling Phoebe. He is still really a horrible person, isn't he? <laughs> he is, yeah, because as soon as he met Yvonne, he was like, 
all this, oh yeah, nobody could compare to me and all this, and really thought that she wasn't married again because nobody could compare to him. He doesn't he doesn't understand why he's a bad person. He just he just feels like, oh, it's not my fault I'm in this situation. It's not my fault I got trapped there. So Till, if if it's gonna come back, how would you like to see it come back? Would you like to see it be a one off? We've said that it still left too many questions hanging. It seemed to be a bit rushed. Phoebe got the short end of the stick, so if it comes back, I want to see it come back six half hours, one after the other, so that we can answer some questions comprehensively. Yeah, even if it was just for one series of six episodes, I think we really, really do need to see more of Phoebe and more of the Royal Oak lot, and all those questions really need to be answered for me. And eventually he's got to bump into somebody who's going the other way. I was just thinking he has to bump into somebody in 1962, then bump into them again in 2016. And so I've said, oh, so you're going back in as well. It's like, no, I'm going forward. I've been going forward since 1956. He suddenly realises there's something else going on. Or maybe that's too much like the evil leap or in Quantum Leap, I don't know. What I did think they missed out on was, obviously, they sort of touched on how come Gary knows all these Beatles songs and all that. I think I think they really missed out on that. They could have done a lot more with that. I think this should have been called Goodnight Sweetheart, brackets, Kill the Beatles. And he has to stop Beatlemania happening lest he be caught out. I'd have really loved to have seen Gary's reaction when, like, say, a Beatles song was played on the radio or Michael was singing it. It's like, how do you know that? I'd have liked to have seen him try and explain how he's he's written this song and how somebody else knows it and he's not sold it or anything. I think that's what I really was looking forward to. If I'm honest, when they said they were bringing it back, I was like, oh, it's going to be really interesting to see how Gary's going to explain himself. And we never actually saw him. We just heard Phoebe if say, it's it like, my series, fair lady. Yeah. Them, yeah. So if, let's say, Gary tells Phoebe everything, she falls out with him and, and, and divorces him and so on, and eventually we get to, say, 1969, and Gary is just wandering around in Trafalgar Square <laughs> with a bottle and a brown bag, saying all those Beatles songs, I actually wrote them, you know. It was me. I did them all first. They nicked them off me. He convinced himself now that this is a case. He actually would, wouldn't he? He convinced himself that he, would, he wrote yes. them. He'd say that he's got, like, certificates to prove it. Look, 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 there's this thing here, and there's a photograph of me singing it in 1959, and, and he's ended up actually just giving George Farby the entire Beatles sheet music collection, and... Uh, no, it, it, there's so many possibilities for this to become George really Formby dark George Formby died in 1962, and... didn't he? Well, whatever. No, but... I'm just saying, if George Formby had lived for another <laughs> four years, he would have almost certainly sung a Beatles song at some point. He'd probably been in a Beatles film, wouldn't he? That's true. He, he if, he, if he'd lived home. long enough, he'd have probably been in Magical Mystery Tour. Well, yeah, exactly. He got Nat Jackley in there, didn't they? So they weren't averse to... And maybe that's what Gary needs to work on. if he If he's in that part of the early 60s before George Formby dies. Maybe he needs to get to George Formby first, keep him alive long enough to watch entertainment history bend and twist and shout. Can I just remind you that this is actually a BBC One mainstream sitcom. This is not some stuff weird there. thing on like Who one cares? of those... It's not some weird thing on one of those Roku independent channels or something like that. I mean, Well, if the BBC <laughs> turn it down and ITV turn it down, maybe Marks and Grant can have their own Roku channel about uh, Gary Sparrow damages entertainment history. <laughs> Gary Sparrow's weird palladium. So I know that we've already talked about it on the cast, but gee, whilst you're with us, I know you've seen all the other sitcom revivals, so what were your thoughts then? Pottage, Young Hyacinth, and... 
I have a lot of issues with I Young Hyacinth. Um, Roy Clark is not one for continuity, and that showed throughout Young Hyacinth. I sort of, I don't know, like part of me thought, I can't remember the lass's name who played Hyacinth, but she did channel Patricia Routledge in, in a way, but then I sort of thought she'd go into over the top with it, and I just thought it's me and my friend were talking about it actually and it was basically we basically just said it's just about four young girls growing up and there wasn't really ind- any indication that it was them like they weren't really how I expected them to be compared to how they were in the sitcom but I did I did think it was it was watchable yeah don't get me wrong I watched it but I don't know I think I think there was something missing there and I didn't understand why they were living in that cottage when throughout the whole series the dad had lived in that council house his whole life. So obviously Rose and Daisy had lived there their whole life. One last thing, how did he, what did you feel about the writing of Gary's daughter, whose character name I've completely forgotten? Because some people said, oh, it's typical teenage girl written by, written by a middle-aged or old man. And you've been a teenage girl recently. I definitely can see people that I know that were exactly like her. And oh, it rang true. That's that's interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it was not convincing at all. I thought she did very well. She's like every teenage girl I've seen on television since the nineties. Of that, ugh. most of them are like that. In all fairness, quite a lot of girls I went to school with are exactly like that. So no, it was. I mean, obviously, for comedy, com- comedic effect, they do obviously emulate it a bit and they do go over the top of it with it. But with comedy, that's always done, isn't it? So. I don't think it was overacted at all. I thought it was quite comfortable and it fitted in well because obviously she didn't really get on with her mum because obviously her mum was more bothered about the money and she just shoved her off to boarding school and she didn't know her dad. So obviously she's got issues and obviously that was her way of taking them out, I guess. But maybe if there was a new series, she'd mellow a bit more and you'd see more of an accurate depiction of a 21st century teenager. I think she comes across as more accurate than, say, Damien in the late Only Fools and Horses. Horses, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, because he's he's a bit more of a sort of like stereotypical, you know, young kid and what have you. But well, Chief, thank you very much indeed for joining oh, us. No, thank you and for having me. Is there anything we can particularly look forward to, G, on the blog coming up soon? Um, I need to get myself together and organise. But yeah, definitely, I'll definitely be looking at sitcom season and reviewing them, and maybe watching some of the originals a bit more like Porridge and Are You Being Served, and maybe looking at them and because I've I've seen the odd episode of them. I do have the box sets, I have to admit, but never really had like a box set binge of either. So maybe looking at those a bit more and finding a twist on take on those and obviously comparing it to what we've seen these past few weeks, maybe. So thank you very much, G, for your assistance there. When we return, we're going to look at everything else. I've spared Tilt watching the new shows on BBC Two because I don't want them having another goodie-style meltdown. I'm going to watch all those myself. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see, you know, just what I thought about them. In the next show, I'm going to have a wee look at the BBC free clips and what have you, but principally our focus next time is going to be the lost sitcoms. And again, you'll find these on the iPlayer. Stepton Sun hasn't been on yet, but you'll find Till Death is Two Part and also Hancock's Half Hour on the iPlayer. And we'll talk about all three of them. And I'm actually going to pose a question till right now. I'm going to give you two weeks to think about this. And then I'd actually like us to discuss this on the show. It's quite a big question. It's quite a profound question. It's the kind of question you would get on Nikki Campbell's big questions on a Sunday morning. <sighs> Has television peaked? Don't answer just now. Give us some thought. We'll come back to it. I know I know. there's some people, probably Guardian TV reviewers, who are shouting, hey, what about HBO? What, what about, about William Mad Wallace? Men and Sopranos and what have you? Well, what about them? We'll come on to that next time anyway. But, okay, so in the meantime, 
Kimmy Schmidt's good. Well, yeah, and we actually we've both mentioned shows in in this podcast from 2016 that we both quite like, but it's a bigger overstretching arc sort of question rather than specific. So if you want to hear any of the previous sitcom clubs, then you'll find them all at both sitcomclub.com and also at podnose.com. On podnose.com, you also find all of our Jaffa Cakes for Proust shows. Got some of them coming up quite shortly. Got some new ones coming up this year. Little programming note, just to make you aware of as well, is that we are sort of in the process of winding down the sitcom club as a regular thing. And to be honest, we've been in the process of doing that for about you know the past year anyway. So when we get to the end of this year, we're going to be back in two weeks, like we said. We're going to be back at Christmas time, and then the sitcom club will just sort of it'll pop up as and when it needs to, when there's something to talk about. If they ever bring out Hardwick House on DVD then I'm sure we will look at that. I think there's a couple of other shows that might pique our interest. If you've got anything at all for us, tweet us at the sitcom club. And you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. So in the meantime, on behalf of G, Tilt, this has been the sitcom club.